Hey there, my name is Vosh. I live stream on YouTube and sometimes, accidentally, in spite of myself, something funny or interesting happens. This is Previously Live. I want you people to listen because I'm sick and tired of lefties not understanding economics, including myself, okay? We're all going to try our best. We're going to sit down. We're going to be good kids, and we're going to learn. Hello, Rage Pope. Hey, Vash. Uh, how's it going? Doing great. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing uh, pretty well. Uh, I got a huge bump from uh, my conversation with Destiny, and so I'm hoping to uh, go for partner after this call today. So. Wait, are you a liberal? Uh, I mean, yeah. I, Fuck. We shouldn't yeah. be talking yeah. publicly. Can we do this off stream? I don't want to give you any... I don't want to bolster your political uh, movement. No, no, it's fine. We have uh, influence in the real world, too. So whatever uh, smattering yeah, of... I know, so we kind of... The, <laughs> the left right now, we basically just have online. We need to hold on to what we can. Um, okay, let's take this point by point, okay? Yeah, sure. The stock market. What is it? So the stock market is basically a place where people can go to trade publicly traded uh, companies. Uh, so they can invest their capital. Um, so when you get paid, instead of leaving your dollars uh, in your bank account, which aren't really doing anything, you can uh, assign it to somebody or lend it to somebody essentially who can go do something productive with it, right? So this can be someone who's, you know, making cars or making buildings or making bombs or, or whatever uh, happens to float your boat. Uh, you can kind of uh, purchase a share in their company and then they can use that money to help grow their company, employ new people, build new factories, things like that. You can what also participate. So a share is literally a share of the company, right? Just like you would have a share of a commune, well, you have shares of a company, but the distribution is a little bit different, right? If I created a company, I could create myself a million shares and assign them all to myself. And then I could go out and sell those to individual investors, right? So in exchange for you giving me the dollars that I need, to uh, go out uh, and create this wonderful idea of a company, I'll issue or I'll let you have some of the shares in my company, right? And then if it's a publicly traded company, you can go to an exchange to sell it to somebody else who wants a piece. And you're hoping that you're gonna be able to sell those shares to someone else uh, at a later date at a higher value. Or if you can't, that I've paid enough dividends on that stock because uh, I've created a successful company and uh, your right as a shareholder is to get some of the dividends out of that company. How many shares does a company have? Uh, it's going to be up to each company individually, right? You can make as many or as few as you want. Um, for a company that's publicly traded, there's uh, what's known as the, um, there, there's, I guess, like the total amount of shares issued. And then there's the float, which are the amount that are publicly traded. So if I create a company with a million shares, uh, that's just an arbitrary number. It could be 10 million. It could be 1,000. It could be 69 because it's funny. Uh, I can uh, sell that is some funny. to you. Yeah, and then uh, I can sell some to you, and that becomes the float, or how much is out there available for purchase. Okay. Do all of the shares added together equal total control of any given company? Uh, yes, uh, and oftentimes it's much less than that. So each company has their own operating agreement, uh, and based on what that is, uh, it could be how many you need to control that company, right? So it could be you need 51%, some you could need 66 uh, and uh, generally what that does, though, is when you buy shares, you actually get to vote on who becomes the board of directors, and then the board of directors uh, essentially runs that company. So it's a, a sort of representative democracy to some extent. Do you have the ability, if you're a company, 
to only float, say, 40% of your company's total equity as shares. Yeah. Therefore, meaning that no matter how much other people accumulate, they never hold complete control over the company. Yes, absolutely. And you can look at what Saudi Arabia has done with Aramco, right? So they valued their company at around one and a half trillion dollars, but they only issued about 25 to 30 billion dollars worth of stock, right? So that's what's known as a very low float stock. Um, there's only 30 billion that the public can trade, but the whole company is valued at one and a half trillion. So they've issued like less than, you know. So the, ob the objective of floating a non-total number of stocks from the company's perspective is to make money off of other people speculating on the future worth of that portion of the company. Uh, a little bit, but more so for the extremely tight stuff. It's more so that they want to be able to say, here's a number that what the public thinks our company's value is. So when we go to the bank and we want to get loans, it's easier to say that here's a public fair uh, valuation than, hey, trust me, my company is worth one and a half trillion. So if you have publicly traded stock, then that's easier for you to go to somebody and say, hey, look, people think it's not just some guy that I paid off to say my company is worth one and a half trillion. Well, actually, people are willing to pay about one and a half trillion dollars for so what my company would be. Participation in the stock market essentially legitimizes um the value assessment of a company and therefore it's desirable because it increases the confidence of those involved with that business uh yes yeah and so there are non-public uh, companies uh that exist and there are stocks that you can trade but they're not considered as valuable because it's a lot harder to find people who are allowed to buy and sell those stocks uh, you generally have to be an accredited investor or um, or an employee at that firm, which uh, makes it very hard for you to sell sell your shares, right? It's harder for you to go out. It's harder for you to get a fair valuation. And it's really unclear uh, what the true value of your company is uh, and whether or not you're getting like screwed on the Tell other hand of that, that deal. What's a true yeah. value for a company? So true value uh, of a company is, would, uh, is generally considered everything that they own, uh, in terms of uh, uh, intellectual property and all their, uh, I guess, like assets that they've built on top of it uh, or the goods and services that they have, uh, minus all their debt and liabilities. Uh, and then um, basically uh, their expectations to be able to continue or grow that is kind of what the true value of a company is. So there's but definitely future... a subjective element to an assessment yeah. of a company's value. Yeah, so we can go out, we can say, hey, all their, you know, they have 500 widgets that are worth $500 each. They have one plot of land that's worth 10,000 and they have a 5,000 uh, uh, loan outstanding. So you can calculate that. And so then it becomes, uh, do we trust the CEO to take it from just one, uh, like one shop to like a chain of like 500? Or is the technology that they're making going to revolutionize the world? And so then it gets into forecasting what kind of that future revenue stream is. And that's kind of what makes stocks risky, right? And this feeds because... to an expectation of eternal growth, right? There's always kind of an expectation. Mm -hmm. If a company is exactly the same worth one year to the next, that's considered a failure. Every company is expected to trend upwards, as our GDP uh, well... has, as our... Um, it, well, it depends. Our, uh, uh, it, it depends on uh, the stock and everything, right? If we're expecting a company to fail in five years, well, the the value of that company could basically be the dissolution price of that country in five years when you finally uh, put that capital to better use, plus all the dividends it's going to pay along the way.
So just because a company, uh, let's say that, for instance, we're going to outlaw gasoline, right? You can still own a refinery stock uh, that will still have some value because for the next five years, it's going to pay out. Uh, then at the uh, end of it, you're going to be able to scrap those facilities or sell it to someone who's going to manufacture some other chemical uh, instead of a uh, gasoline. And so there still could be some value in it, even though we know intrinsically that company is going to fail. That's fair. It's not just speculation, at least not always. Uh, so, for example, I know every mm -hmm. once in a while these pop up in the news. You have a company that's valued very, very highly. It's some tech startup or some innovative service, and it collapses utterly on itself. And it turns out that they owned and did very little, and it was basically just a self-perpetuating hype machine. I think Philosophy yeah. 2 brought this up. There was some... There was some mm -hmm. business yeah. renting company in the UK and they uh, were- Oh, WeWork? Yeah, 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 exactly. And it seems mm -hmm. like people had an overinflated um, estimation of that company's worth and something happened to to pierce the veil. And as soon as that happened, people's, it just it just plummeted. Rock yeah, bottom. well, it happens all the time too. Uh, there's like actual straight up fraud, like Wirecard. Um, there's uh, times when company growth isn't going to be great. And so what's really important too is not that you just have people bidding up the price as like what that fair share of that value, future value could be, but you also have people on the other side who said, hey, you know, this seems like really weird. I don't think this business model is going to work out. It seems like they're taking on a lot of debt and they're not renting a lot of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So it's important that not only are there people buying, but there's people willing to like short sell to some extent as well. Obviously, when you go on with the intent to say, hey, this company is like, total garbage and it's going to be destroyed and we need to just harm all the workers so I can make a profit. That's bad. But for the most part, most short selling is either done incidentally by market makers. Oh, hold on. You're going a little saying, bit too fast there. Short oh, sorry, selling. We'll have to cover that in a little bit. Okay, um, sure. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So taking it one step at a time. So to summarize what we have so far, um, uh, participation in the stock market is a means by which people can be invested in the potential growth or downfall of any given enterprise. The enterprises want to do this because selling shares and or floating shares is a good way to make money. Additionally, it's a good way to bolster and to legitimize your assessment of what your company is worth. It, uh, it, it essentially, it puts more people's skin in the game, which increases yeah, yes. the total investment in what's going on. Um, but there is a highly subjective element to that assessment at the end of the day, and there will occasionally be, I don't know if this would technically be a market failure, but there will, there will occasionally be upsets where it turns out that something was wildly over or underestimated in value. Yeah, so you can argue whether or not bubbles kind of are uh, market failures, uh, and to a small extent they are, but for the most part, it doesn't tend to be something that has a massive kind of uh, impact on the market uh, as a whole. Uh, and generally, uh, it doesn't really have an impact on kind of efficient markets because it's very difficult to pinpoint when exactly that bubble is going to burst and if it's going to burst by how much uh, and everything else. Th those are very, very difficult problems to kind of solve. Mm -hmm. So you can still be quote unquote efficient, but still have these kind of bubble uh, behaviors or irrational expectations. Well, it seems like um, typically... Sometimes. It, typically, these bubbles are erroneous, and it seems like most of the major players in the stock market, most major businesses, have fairly reliable um, uh, rates of return. They have fairly reliable increases or decreases to their stock price. I'm not so much interested in the bubbles yeah. because I think they, in and of themselves, pose a threat to the economy. What I'm interested in is the extent to which 
their existence means that investment in a stock is just speculation. So I'll give you an example. Bitcoin. <laughs> Bitcoin is worth more the more people buy Bitcoin, basically. Um, or Dogecoin, I guess, since that's what's hot right now. Oh, and, yeah. and since the only thing that Bitcoin and Dogecoin are based on are themselves, functionally, that means that the, their prices only rise with consumer confidence. There's nothing underlying it. There's no underlying Bitcoin incorporated that does good one year or does bad one year. Yeah. It's well, just speculation. I, I, think, I think those are more of a commodity one, I think there's like only so many Bitcoin and that's why people are saying it's a store of value. Mm -hmm. And two, it's kind of similar to fiat currency. Well, what's a dollar bill backed by? Well, it doesn't really have any value except for the fact the United States government makes you pay taxes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't have value. The point of these uh, kind of things are to facilitate transactions between people. Because if I'm trying to uh, buy a house, uh, and uh, I, I work as, I, I don't know, like a sheep shear. And the guy who owns the house doesn't want 400,000, you know, uh, pounds of uh, sheep wool. Uh, I got to go some, find 400,000 people who want things that the house owner wants. And so it makes it very difficult to facilitate that transaction. But if we have dollars or whatever you want to use as your medium of exchange, rubles, yen, bitcoins, doge coins, whatever it is, as long as uh, it's an acceptable substitute, then uh, we can kind of use that to change our uh, needs, right? Of course. And that though, way I can in also... A, in a pragmatic sense, I mean, yeah. Bitcoin doesn't function well as a currency because of its rapid and wild fluctuations. The US dollar has a really reliable interest rate, mm -hmm. which, which we, yeah. we know a dollar today, the next, it, uh, t next year is going to be worth like 99 or 98 yeah. cents maybe, you know? Um, whereas yeah. with Bitcoin, for all we know, next week, the price could plummet or, or could skyrocket, you know? Yeah, but if you look at a lot of developing nations, uh, I, I think their, their currency fluctuation rates are way wilder. So while it doesn't look attractive from us and like a Western perspective, well, if you're living in a country that's undergoing hyperinflation, uh, or if they're undergoing a lot of... Uh, uh, economic or uh, political instability, these incredibly volatile digital assets can actually look okay. That makes I'm, sense to me. I, I don't necessarily have an issue with yeah. the concept of blockchain um, or, or, or cryptocurrencies. Um, yeah. Though, as I understand it, Bitcoin in particular has some really weird ecological consequences, something about the way yeah. they're produced. I don't know the specifics, but it's not really tied to the stock. Market, I, I know so. they have like a shit ton of like data centers and they burn more energy than Denmark or something. I saw that <laughs> stat come up. It's like pretty, it's pretty, yeah, I, 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 I don't That's know how I feel impressive. about just, <laughs> well, it's pretty impressive, but it's also pretty damaging to the environment at the same time. In an impressive like, way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so we, so we have, um, so, so when, when a person buys into Bitcoin, I would be willing to bet most people um, don't use it as currency. Most people use it speculatively. They're hoping to sell when it peaks at a million or whatever. That would be my guess. Uh, uh, yeah, that sounds right. And a lot of people are saying, well, it's better than, better than fiat because there's only 21 million. That's what the latest billionaires are saying. I think Michael Saylor uh, said it and Elon Musk said it. Um, but I, I'd have to go check. I don't know. I don't do that I, I much. Can't, uh, I can't speak Bitcoin. to that. But I'm interested in this because right now, Bitcoin's doing really well. Um, there's mm -hmm. nothing underlying it. Bitcoin's success, Bitcoin's worth is people's faith in Bitcoin. 
Um, but then you have another company. It is conceivable for a, a company that is remarkably productive to have its stock price and the value of the company plummet massively, is it not? Say, if there was misinformation that spread in the market, something that made people think they had to sell, 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 and everyone yeah. panic sells, it turns out to be misinformation. The company is unchanged. Nothing there has changed. But all of a sudden, the company is worth a tenth what it was the other day. This is a, yeah. a thing that can happen, yes? Yeah, that, that's totally possible um, mm -hmm. and totally possible, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah it, it's totally. Uh, so the thing is, um, depending on w what the source of the misinformation is, that's pretty heavily regulated. Uh, so uh, if you were to just make up things about a company or something, uh, and they weren't true or substantiated, then you would be getting in a lot of trouble for it, at least here in the United States. I can't speak to all the other markets around the world. But for the most part, uh, what, what the SEC tries to do is have kind of fair and orderly markets. So fair being uh, everyone who participates has an equal chance at a slice of the pie. Whenever information comes out, it's shared between all participants um, at the same time uh, in the same place. And so they all get it and they can process it uh, at their own time. And uh, orderly such that there are circuit breakers so that if misinformation or something comes out uh, and a stock goes way up or way down in value, they'll pause it so everyone can take a minute to think about what's happening or 10 minutes or depending on the circuit breaker and everything else uh, to just like reflect and say, hey, is what you're doing really rational? Or at least that's the reason behind a lot of the regulation that we have. I remember um, there was a really interesting Tom Scott video where he said that there were these, um, I don't know the technical term, but that they, they, um, they manage stock market transactions. It was built and because stock market transactions are all done by computers these days, um, what they'd done was they had a length of fiber optic cable uh, run around in a spool in their building that then led towards the central database at the New York Stock Exchange. And that spool actually delays computer transactions between the institution and um, the stock exchange by a fraction of a second because info travels at the speed of light. But if you ravel a fiber <laughs> optic cable up enough, I mean, you delay that yeah. transaction. Well, there process. was also people who built uh, radio telescopes from uh, Chicago to New York because it was faster to send their information over that line of sight than it was to send it through a cable, right? So that fractional like microseconds that you're talking about uh, isn't really going to make much of a difference for uh, individual traders. Uh, sure, there's some arguments uh, around uh, HFTs and those things that they do, but for the most part, uh, all the uh, market participants are now allowed to co-locate their servers, so uh, they can all essentially rent a server and park it in the same room as the exchange, so you no longer have to worry about those kind of shenanigans. Interesting. It's just interesting to me how at this point everything is done by the by the picosecond with these with these exchanges. So there's well, it, it kind of depends on your investing time frame and everything else, right? If you look at what Warren Buffett does in terms of his investing style, he's buying a company for thirty years, right? Mm -hmm. If he's going to buy a company and he's going to hold it for thirty years, what's a picosecond going to mean for him in terms of his returns, right? No, Maybe not in stuff loses... like that. Probably more like if you're if you're on margin or if you're looking to sell or buy at a very specific price. At that point, maybe it would be, um, it'd be preferable well, to have the, the fastest well, no, possible No, because if you're looking to buy or sell at a specific price, uh, you can put in uh, limit orders, and they'll always execute in the order that they're placed in at the price that you want. If you're trying to hit like a bidder ask with like a market sell or a market buy, well, then yes, that could influence you. 
But for most retail traders, uh, you, you're, that's a very, very dangerous game to be playing, to make your trades, try to make fractions of a penny uh, to try to make a little bit of money out of it. That's not a very good investing strategy. Interesting. Okay, that's something that I would have to look more into. So pulling back for a bit, um, with this, um, with this um, uh, uh, Wall Street bets uh, nonsense, mm -hmm. so we all had, or a lot of us had, our populist takes to begin with. Um, since then, I've tried to read up as I could. Do you mind if I attempt to summarize the situation as I understand it? Uh, no, please uh, go ahead. So... As I understand it, GameStop hasn't been doing great lately. So there were some hedge funds, which are organizations that manage other people's money, often to the tune of trillions of dollars, um, uh, decided to short GameStop, which is to say that they borrowed shares of that stock at its current price and then waited, expecting the price to decrease. Thus, meaning that or they, they bought them at their current, they borrowed at their current price, sold them and then wanted the prices to decrease so they could buy them back and return them with interest and they would make money off this process. This process only works if the price reliably goes down. So a bunch of uh, um, hedge funds and some enterprising folks on Reddit noticed that the sh uh, stock was being shorted and instead pumped the price up by buying a lot of the shares that were floated. And in doing so, they did fuck over some hedge funds um, other hedge funds made quite a bit of money from it because anything that Reddit notices, they're going to notice probably before. Uh, and while a lot of early investors made a lot of money from this, the problem is that at the end of the day, this is kind of a pump and dump scheme where somebody gets left holding the bag at the end. It's all well and good to, I think the term is called a short squeeze, to pump up the price so that the person doing the short selling is fucked. That's all well and good, but... At the end of the day, if everyone's buying into this, eventually somebody's going to buy GameStop at $300 a share, and then the price is going to go down. And some people bought in quite a bit. Would you say that's a accurate summary of what happened, more or less? Uh, yeah, so I can add a little bit more flavor to that. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't think I know any individual hedge fund that has trillions of dollars. So I think the big ones that you're thinking about, like uh, BlackRock, uh, obviously, uh, these are uh, kind of uh, wealth managers or asset managers. And so they have a large number of uh, separate funds that they run. Uh, so it's not really, so it, it may be one advisor for all of these, but these are a lot of separate vehicles. Um, also, uh, in terms of like how big a hedge fund can be, well, you could set up your own hedge fund for yourself uh, with like $50,000 if you really wanted to. Actually, you could probably do it a lot cheaper, I guess, if you're just doing it for yourself. Um, it's basically a hedge fund is basically a pooled investment vehicle um, for multiple people to get uh, put their money in and invest in something. And a mutual fund is a similar thing, but it's accessible to the general public instead of accredited investors. So if you wanted to who get... are accredited investors so uh per the sec definition an accredited investor is somebody who has uh, either one million in net worth outside of the value of their uh, primary home they've made two hundred thousand per year for the, for the last two years and have the expectation to make that uh, next year or that number is raised to three hundred thousand uh, if it's combined with their spouse uh, and now they've updated that to be holders of the series i want to say it was 765 and 82 licenses uh, I'd have to go double check, but they just yeah, I was curious uh, for a second that. that it was just yeah. being able to make money. If that's the case, oh then... yeah, well that's really weird because this these rules and regulations they came out in the 1930s in response to um, 
in response to the big uh, stock market crash, right? And so these numbers haven't been updated. So as you can obviously imagine, a million dollars in 1939 or 1940 is a lot different than a million dollars today. And these have never been updated. So these are very antiquated rules. Can a poor person become an accredited investor? So now, uh, now they can, yes, with the expansion of getting the 765 or 82. I believe the test uh, is about $150. But generally, or maybe it's $80. I don't know what that, that is. I'd have to go look. But uh, you'd have to study for it, obviously. You need to get study materials, and that can be pretty expensive. Uh, so the answer uh, to that is no. Uh, on top of it, generally, uh, hiring an investment manager is pretty expensive. I want to say the average fee is one and a half and uh, 15. So they take one and a half percent of everything that you put in and 15% of all the gains you make, which doesn't really make it a desirable investment for a lot of people, unless you're looking for something for, for unique strategies that can't simply be done. Um, and for the most part, a lot of these funds just lose a lot of money for their investors compared to if they just like bought like a broad market index fund right yeah as i understand it because yeah. everyone's heard this some version of this factoid which is mm -hmm. um a, a bunny rabbit eating carrots off of buttons predicts better market you know growth than 20 experts or monkey on a keyboard it's yeah so on and so forth you know that whatever mechanisms lead to consistent growth in the market um, seem to be fairly elusive to our experts, though there are yeah, obviously well, reliable bets just by investing in, like you said, a broad index fund, right? Yeah. And so there's a lot of other ways that they make money uh, that they're trying to do it in ways that aren't necessarily correlated to the markets. So for example, um, high frequency trading firms, uh, you can invest in those if you have enough money, right? You're accredited. And then they make money uh, kind of trading on the high frequency spreads, or they make strategies that are designed to uh, kind of hedge tail risk uh, in certain down markets or things like that. So it's not necessarily something that that, that is bad. Uh, and there's a lot of unique things that they do. It's just not necessarily well, the I best thing to do. Well, I think all of this is bad, of course, but right, relativistic. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, if you think, yeah, I mean, sure, if you're going to think it's all bad, you're going to think it's all bad. But they do, do things that are kind of uncorrelated. That's kind of the meme now is that if you invest in us, we'll get returns that are, that will happen regardless of what happens in the market. And that's the selling point. For well, us. that would, I mean, that would be the dream, of course. Um, yeah. Okay. So in your opinion, did anything illegal happen with regards to this whole GameStop fiasco? Or actually, I should say two questions. Did anything illegal happen, comma, did anything unethical that should be illegal happen? Uh, yeah, so I think the most egregious thing was probably what happened on social media. There was a lot of people getting people behind the hype. I think that was pretty immoral. I think, uh, I think, uh, Chamath, uh, and, uh, I think it was Musk who were tweeting out like buy GameStop and the, they're getting screwed. I, or Robin Hood screwed people. It was like very, very immoral. I don't know if it's illegal or not. The SEC is going an investigation. I think potentially on the Wall Street Bet subreddit. Uh, I know that there was a lot of accusations of mods deleting posts of like people losing money or saying to sell or things like that. I think that's very influential. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of anything illegal happening, I don't think uh, anything uh, did. Uh, I think there's going to be a very big question though around um, the halting of individual stocks versus everything. And I'll, I'll kind of put forward the case for uh, both arguments here. So to, so, so to lay out before you say that, just so everyone's mm -hmm. caught up. So what you're saying is back when everyone was buying GameStop, 
Robinhood and a couple other um, trading apps, they shut down the ability for that specific stock and a couple other ones to be traded. Uh, and the reason they did this, so, well, they didn't actually claim this. I think other people have speculated this, but the reason why they did this supposedly was because the more volatile a stock gets, the more money they have to put forward. Um, yeah, so the more collateral they have to offer up and the volatility was so high that they were having a liquidity issue. They weren't actually capable. Well, it's, it's more of a margin issue than a liquidity issue, right? So yeah. the, so what we have is what's known as a T plus two clearing system, where if I buy a stock from you, uh, it takes you two days to deliver that stock to me because for whatever reason in the 1980s, they decided that that was a good system and we haven't updated anything for years and years because you know how regulation kind of goes. So if uh, I so buy a stock, is, it, that actual thing doesn't happen for two days. Yeah, but so your broker then has to put up some collateral um, in, in order to uh, be, be able to say that, hey, in two days, I'm going to give you the dollars. And then and uh, there, the other side's broker has to put up money uh, as well that says, uh, and I have the money and I'm going to deliver the stock to you in two days. And so if they don't meet that obligation, it's called a fail to deliver. And then there's a number of mechanisms that'll handle that. But the point of the collateral is uh, so that in two days, that transaction actually goes through. Okay. And so generally, when stocks aren't fluctuating very high or very uh, much in value, well, you really only need to put up maybe 25% of the stock's value in collateral, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, on a usual day, uh, uh, you will, your brokerage and your clearinghouse will be both selling stocks and buying stocks in relatively equal numbers. So the amount of collateral that you need to put up uh, isn't uh, all that high. But uh, what, what happened because, because was... Because there's a low likelihood of some kind of market fuckery getting in the way of the expected... Um, yeah, well, yeah also, components of the transaction over the next two right, days. and your expected debts and obligations kind of balance out, right? If you sell something for 10000 and someone owes you $10,000, well, your net expectation of that is like zero rather than if you sell something for $10,000 and sell another one for $10,000 mm -hmm. uh, because that's now minus 20,000 instead of about zero. Okay. Is there any, um, is there any modern need for that two day delay or is this a component? Nope, that's something that you guys should talk to all of your uh, congressmen and women about. Because back in the reps. day, if you wanted to buy a stock, you had to like send a guy on horseback and he would... Uh, well, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, even in the 1980s when that rule came about, there was an option for a zero-day or a same-day uh, settlement system, and they chose not to go with it, and they still haven't updated it. And it's, quite frankly, pretty ridiculous, um, if we're being honest. Um, Interesting. Do you think this does also, damage to the market? Uh, a, a little bit. Um, in terms of, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter all that much. It, it could just be a little bit more efficient. Um, if you're talking about, if I had the ballpark of like, 0% damage to 100, it would probably be around half a percent maybe. Uh, in terms of damage, there's a little bit that's affected, but at the end of the day, the market still functions fairly smoothly, and there's a lot of big processes around it that have uh, come about that have made things run relatively smoothly. Gotcha. But there's, a, I think there's a lot of middlemen that definitely could be taken out uh, of the whole transaction process who are taking little bits here and there. Um, uh, okay. So, um, so that would only really be an issue in these incredibly rare, incredibly high volatility 
um, uh, well, so situation. what happens then is it just increases margin requirements, right? So a lot of well-capitalized brokers and clearinghouses didn't have problems transacting, right? So just Vanguard has like a trillion. A retail, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so Robinhood is a new upstart brokerage. They manage about 20 billion, I think is the number. Uh, and so their margin requirements were normally around $25 billion. So they have to have essentially borrowed money to put up their normal collateral requirements. And I, I think that number got up to like 35 or 36 billion. And so uh, in order to like meet their needs, uh, they had to do two things. Uh, they had to go out to all their banks and uh, draw down all the loans they could to put money in. And they had to go to their investors and sell them more equity in order to meet those things to allow people to trade. The second thing that uh, happened there is uh, the central uh, clearing. Uh, this is my understanding. I don't know how exactly this conversation went down or what went down. They, they, I assume that they got told, we need, you need X billion dollars in your account in order to continue trading. Uh, or you can have Y billion, which is less than X, but you're going to be limited to this number of GameStop, AMC, Nokia. I don't know what the other meme stocks are being traded, but you're only going to ration out so many of those per day. And so they said, well, for the sake of most of our customers, a lot of them aren't trading these meme stocks, so we still want that to be functional for them. And then in order to be fair to all of our customers, instead of letting one guy buy up all of allotted, I don't know, 10,000 shares of GameStop for the day, mm -hmm. well, we're going to give each person one so they can have, so we can at least try to treat everybody on our app equally. So we can it's, all it's an be all together in this, um, yeah, okay. Misery. Yeah, so and so the, the question then becomes, well, what's the right thing for Robinhood to do, right? Should they have shut down trading on that one thing? Or should they have forced everybody to kind of wait to be able to make trades because they couldn't meet their margin requirements? Uh, is there a better way to distribute the the trades uh, that they're allowed to make? It's, it's a tough question. I, I'm not a regulator. I don't know how I would answer it. But Do you I, think I mean, they should have been forthcoming with the liquidity issue? Because it seems like as a so, business doing that's a really bad idea. Well, there's a difference between a liquidity issue. Uh, so when you're talking about a liquidity issue, that basically means I don't have money to pay my bills, right? If you say okay, liquidity a, issue. An inability yeah. to meet the, the collateral yeah, necessary yeah. So to I think these. When yeah. Vlad went out and uh, he had his conversation, uh, I, I think he should have talked with the PR guy more. Uh, I think what he did, uh, it, it was an awful PR statement. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of the retail blame, uh, all he really could have done is shifted it to like the central clearinghouse uh, and like shifted responsibility. But at the end of the day, the end result for his end users uh, would have been the same. And I think a lot of the same outrage would have just been redirected, maybe not on Robinhood, but to a different uh, responsible organization. So the more, um, the more you, um, the more you distribute blame, the more abstract and difficult to pin it is. I wouldn't be surprised mm -hmm. if a decent number of people left Robinhood after that because they they assumed that what Robinhood was doing was um like like playing buddy buddy with their um with their hedge fund pals which um yeah so is always a lot I, I suppose things. a threat in the broad sense but in this instance seems like um this was yeah, just a so natural consequence of market forces. We can talk a little bit about what Robin Hood does that uh, I don't really like um, mm -hmm. personally. So, uh, so the first thing is um, Robin Hood acts as a third-party marketer, um, as a brokerage, and as their own clearinghouse. So generally, these are thought to be kind of checks and balances for each other. But basically, Robin Hood... Uh, uh, is in the business of getting you to trade on the app. They want you to trade a lot on the app. 
and then they control their own collateral through their own clearinghouse to the central uh, clearing corporation in order to kind of uh, cut on money, right? So they can keep everything. They say it's, it's for the cheapest for the customer uh, because if they do all those things rather than paying somebody else because they can do it cheaper in-house, that leads to a lot of uh, potential conflicts of interest and things like that, which uh, on a very high level, um, that, that looks a little bit sketchy. Uh, the second thing that they do is a payment for order flow. But uh, the way they do the payment for order flow, uh, I think, is almost harmful uh, to consumers. So generally, uh, in finance, so there's like a, what we call the 2080 rule. Um, yeah. So if you take 20% and you give the person 80%, well, that's like on its face, it seems like reasonable, right? So when other brokerage go, when other brokerages go to market makers and they sell uh, your order flow, uh, well, what they do is they give the uh, market maker an option to give you, or th so they have to guarantee that the order is going to be at the best price on the market or better. And so uh, if you're market selling and the price for GameStop is $55, well, the market maker has the right to take that uh, transaction, the other side of that transaction, and then uh, get a better price for you. So if they get it for $54, well, they've now saved a dollar on that transaction. If they return 80 cents of that dollar uh, to the retail trader who now gets 54.2 instead of 55, well, then that's generally considered okay. And then that market maker will recompense uh, your brokerage for making that transaction for you. So in the end, the retail uh, guy is better off that the order went to the market maker rather, rather than flowing into the market itself. But what Robinhood did was in order to maximize their revenue, they went to these places and they negotiated against their customers. They said, hey, you should take more than 20% so you can pay us more back, right? So of that dollar that would be saved by going to that market maker, uh, they, they would say, all right, you should keep 40 cents so you can pay me 20 or something like that. I don't know what the contracts are, what the negotiation was. I just know that they were actively negotiating that cut to be significantly worse than what the industry standard was so they could make money off of your transactions, right? And I think that kind of feedback model of them getting paid uh, for each transaction that you make leads them to design you to overtrade and the Massachusetts um, Securities and Exchange Commission actually uh, sued uh, Robinhood over this gamification of the trading, right? Okay. I think I might have to rewatch the VOD to fully appreciate that, but I think I understand what you're saying. Um, essentially, they're, to, to put it really, really simply, they're putting <laughs> forward and advertising a service that seems as though it offers a more equitable um, opportunities to retail investors, but it actually uh, ends up costing them more in the long run. Uh, yes, correct. Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. It's okay. If I get the 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 general thrust of it, then the then I then I think I did good. I did a good job. Yeah. I, um, I, yeah. I would just uh, add on that um, it's not necessarily a bad thing that they're getting rebates because you are saving money on commissions. Uh, and this is only for order flow that uh, you put out that is a market order uh, and not a limit order. Um, if you put a limit order that won't be executed in the market, uh, in the market that is very, very rarely picked up by market makers who actually want to um, improve the price on that. So that is basically when you click buy now or sell now versus like wait till the stock hits $25 to buy or wait till it hits $50 to sell. That's generally um, how that goes. Gotcha. Um, I want to um, I want to pull back to some some broader topics. 
there were a couple <laughs> of people in chat who were asking some quick things that I'll just answer really quick. Somebody asked what a sure. margin is. It, it, please correct me if I'm wrong. As I understand it, a margin um, it, or selling on margin is um, is is just when you you borrow to to sell. You you borrow money to sell. Um, yeah. Or, so, or you, to buy well, a stock. Sorry. Um, yeah, uh, and Reg T limits uh, uh, U.S. investors to 100% margin. So if I have a dollar, I can buy two dollars worth of stocks, uh, and that's the most that um, you're allowed to take. So you, there's a limit to margin, but there isn't a limit to shorting as long as there are people able to borrow. Uh, yes, and so you, uh, so what happens is your margin requirement for those shorts is going to vary by your counterparty, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, for instance, um, if you're going to borrow from me, I can say Vash has a ton of money. I know he's good for it. If GameStop goes up from fifty dollars to five hundred on that short, uh, I know he has a he's a successful YouTube streamer, so I know he's going to be good for like four hundred fifty dollars. So uh, I, I don't really need that, right? But uh, if I go to somebody else, I, I could say, hey, you know what? That looks really sketchy. I'm going to need you to put like $500 of collateral up to uh, borrow that stock. And so depending on your relationship with who that counterparty is, uh, what your company financials are, or things like that, um, they're going to require you to have different amounts of margin available. Uh, and the same thing uh, with your individual brokerages. Uh, so as an individual investor, I think if you get approved for margin, you can also go short yourself. And so each brokerage is going to have their own uh, requirement, right? And at some point, when the money in your margin account uh, goes down, uh, they're going to call you up and say, hey, Vosh, you know, I know you're probably good for it, but I'm going to need you to put another $100 in. And if you don't, they close out the position. And so that's what happened okay. to those big funds. Yeah. Okay. And also we had, yeah, Robinhood was selling people's GME shares because they had bought them on margin and, and they, they had hit that threshold. As I understand that, that's generally considered like um, a shameful thing, right? When a margin gets called, like it means that you fucked up somewhere if that's happening to you. Well, that's not necessarily like uh, always a problem, right? Uh, it's you're going to have losing positions, especially if you trade on margin, mm -hmm. but that's not really a shame thing, right? Do you shame your kid when he fails a test? Like he made a mistake. Well, maybe if you're a bad obviously. parent. I just, I remember, <laughs> I saw there was a meme yeah. in, um, this was before everything went down, but in 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 Wall Street bets, they would. It, it was like a like a bad like it, like if that happened to you, it's like oh you fucked up, buddy. But I uh, guess well, it, if back you invest in the day, enough, you would post loss porn and people would laugh. But yeah, yes, I only visited yeah. Wall Street bets a couple of times before this whole thing uh, went down. It's successful. Like uh, most of the people who are investing, especially on the online communities, they tend to lean pretty crazy. Uh, I, I would say like male, very conservative. Uh, interesting creative choice in uh, language and descriptions. <laughs> That's one way of putting uh, it. Their Discord server yeah. got shut down for hate speech. Well, I mean, they did call, uh, you know, their weekly options were friendly desserts, but um, you can uh, fill in with your favorite slur if you want to. So it's really not surprising. Yeah, my um, brief experiences with the community, it, it, honest, it almost seems pulled here sometimes. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there's major, major overlap between people looking to make a, a few quick bucks uh, because their life's like not in a good spot and people going into investing, right? I, I think that the overlap in that demographic, especially when they don't have a lot to look forward to, uh, kind of tends to like blend together in that region. Okay, that makes sense to me. So you would agree with me, and I want to cap this with a, with a responsible with some responsible messaging that if you're a retail investor as in you're an individual you don't have any special hands in on the business if you're a retail investor generally speaking 
you should invest in solid and safe index funds for consistent and reliable growth that'll pan out way the fuck better than just leaving your money in, 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 a, in a bank account. Um, mm -hmm. You should do that. And if you're ever going to engage in speculative investment, like throwing money down on a particular stock because you think it's going to go up, um, that is only something that you should be doing with money you can afford to lose and with a great deal of research. And even then, you should probably wait a day to think about it before going for it. Yeah, so my chat's screaming for me to plug VT. So This is not financial VT, advice. This is what I yeah, would do hypothetically in a video game. Yeah, yeah. so VT is just like a world index fund, I guess. It's super low cost. Uh, a lot of people like it because it's generally a good bet that the world economy is going to go up. I would say another thing to look at too is what your cash needs are going to be for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. And if you can't tolerate the speculative risk, you can always get slightly better returns in terms of bond index funds. Uh, than uh, just holding cash, but uh, it'll be safer than, uh, say, investing in stocks. And then uh, if you even have like $100, as long as you're like kind of young, or even if uh, you're a little bit older, if you go to like most major financial institutions, they'll, they'll generally assign somebody to like spend an hour with you, learn more about your life and what your needs are, and actually recommend some pretty good stuff to you. You always want to make sure to ask like how they're getting paid if they're putting you into funds with high sales loads or things like that. But generally, uh, a lot of these places, they'll make a lot of money over the lifetime of your business. So they're willing to invest like an hour or two to like build out like a general investment plan uh, with you uh, because they want to keep your business for the rest of your life. And so they're willing to like give you a couple hundred dollars worth of uh, one of their employees time uh, to like walk you through like what your individual needs are. So I, I would recommend that for most people. So. That makes sense. Sometimes yeah. I do feel like spe me in a video game. Sometimes I do feel like speculative investments can be reasonable. I know for a fact when the pandemic began, I thought, fuck, Amazon's going to go up. It has to. Everyone's going to be ordering online. And that did end up happening. I think it went <laughs> up by about 50% from first quarter 2020 to the end of 2020, um, more or less. Sounds about right. Uh, and, and so I guess that would have been a, a good buy-in. Do you think that making judgments like that with money you can afford to lose after thinking about it. Do you think that's something that people can responsibly engage in? Yeah. Or is this yeah. a house so, always wins situation? So I think you can, but the most important thing uh, that you have to ask is, uh, what new information am I bringing in uh, to the market? Uh, do I think that this information hasn't already been priced in? Uh, and then um, if so, then yes, that's the point of an efficient market is a lot of people come in with ideas, either that things are going to do uh, well or poor. And the sum of everybody's collective decisions gives us a ballpark fair price. So if you're coming into the market with, hey, you know, I, I think this pandemic is going to be a lot worse than what uh, people are saying. I think that there's going to be a lot of boomers that are now buying from Amazon because they don't want to get coronavirus outside. Mm -hmm. Well, that's something that you can add information into the market and you, you could get paid for it. But on the other side, you could totally get crushed, right? So like what happens if, um, you know, this thing ended up being like way more deadly and Amazon lost half of its warehouse workers, right? Where would you be? And so the most important thing in investing is always risk management. Uh, a lot of these leveraged index funds and things look like they're gonna be great investments because they only go up, but it's kind of sequence of returns and increased volatility can have really, really bad uh, performance hits. And knowing that you being able to reflect on your position and say, hey, this isn't working out is very, very important. So you can't just think about the upside. You have to think about the downside, uh, do things within your risk, 
and make sure that you're thinking about what happens if your decisions go wrong as well. So. And in mo and what you said there, th that the market has already priced it in, that's a thing that you should expect. Because generally speaking, the likelihood that a retail investor is going to it speculate faster and more reliably than the all the powers that be that operate in Wall Street, generally not that likely. Though pricing something in doesn't happen immediately, as was the case mm -hmm. with Amazon stock, it climbed gradually in like yeah, absolutely. Um, March and onward. Um, but but often these like sudden shifts, by the time you know what's happening, it's almost too late. Yeah, but uh, here's the thing: most of this stuff is public information. So if you're looking to add stuff in, you're either going to have to have some new predictive model. You're going to have to do some sort of like independent research on your own for the most part. Uh, so a good example of this is the movie China Hustle, right? They literally flew out to China to kind of count the number of trucks coming in and out of some of these paper plants, right? They were doing, they were getting information that was publicly available, but no one had actually gone out and gathered, right? So if you just think, oh, the coronavirus, Amazon's going to go up, well, someone's probably thought of that, right? But uh, if you're out there, you know, flying your drone over like the oil pipelines or something that they're building and you're seeing that progress has slowed, well, maybe that's like uh, not public how information. Far, how yet, far does right? that go? What if you used a drone to spy, like, or to like look down on business people and you can like lip read them? Is that would that be insider info if you uh, uh, well if it's happening that? in the public without the reasonable expectation of privacy then I would think probably not but if you were like hacking your way into Microsoft to like listen in on like their meetings then you, yeah that you need, would be what you need is like those um those long range like um those infrared scanners and you like follow the the stock people you know and if there's ever like a heat spike <laughs> you're like oh shit sell sell or something like that um. Okay, we, we're almost out of time yeah. because of the top of the hour, I'm speaking to another person. But I want to ask no, something a little broad. Um, sure. This isn't a leading question. I'm not trying to bait or anything like that. But I genuinely want mm -hmm. to know, what do you think our economy would look like without Wall Street? If we didn't uh, have any system of speculation or of buying into ownership? Yeah. So I think we would be very, very far behind where we are now. So access to public capital markets uh, and solid central banking has led to tremendous uh, growth in terms of businesses. It allows people to connect uh, to businesses uh, and there's to some extent a barrier um, kind of uh, lowered because these publicly reporting companies have to meet high audit standards. There's a lot of compliance and things that they have to do. So the average uh, investor isn't getting fleeced like they were back in the day when some guy would come by, offer to sell some securities and disappear. Uh, obviously, there's still a lot of regulation that can be done. There's bad regulation out there that needs I would need to, get to research that for a long time yeah. before I felt. Oh yeah, yeah, that's fine. There's yeah. bad regulation. Yeah, so there's bad regulation that can be removed. There's good regulation that can come forward, help make things more efficient. Um, there's, uh, I think, but uh, in general, I would say financialization of a lot of goods and services has led to a lot of progress. It's led to a lot of entrepreneurs being able to launch businesses, small businesses, large businesses, everything in between. And at the same time, it's also been used for a lot of fraudulent things. You can go to the SEC's website. They give press releases every day, like hedge fund manager uh, caught for fraud or uh, business uh, caught for fraud or uh, illegal securities offerings and things like that. So, And of uh, course, we do uh, have these crashes every once in a while. Of course, we had, uh, we had 2008 and we had um, the Great Depression, which were yeah. at least in part caused by 
these processes. Yeah, if, if you want to talk another day about 2008, mm -hmm. it's way, way, way more complicated than people think. Wasn't and it like I, I subprime mortgage loans so being packaged with of, AAA loan packages and people were yeah, buying? So, yeah. So that was kind of like the start, right? Someone lit it on fire. And then Henry Paulson and the Republicans thought that um, it would be great if they aligned themselves with short sellers. So instead of like trying to act as a lender of uh, last resort and stabilizing our financial system, they basically went and started tearing down institutions, which aligned with uh, people who were trying to uh, essentially tear down the economy at that point and make a ton of money along the way, rather than acting as the government should, which is on the side of, hey, we need to stabilize and normalize things. Um, and so there is a whole mess of bad regulation that came through. There was companies that had just raised money uh, that were nationalized by governments. And then it, uh, investors said, well, I just gave you money two weeks ago and the government took it. I'm not touching anything. And that stopped a lot of flow of capital to stabilize things. So that was just kind of like the tip of the iceberg. It was like the first domino, uh, okay. if you would. Then I'd have to so, look more into yeah. it. That's one of the yeah. frustrating things about economic. I don't know if this is my bias yeah. because I got into sociology, but I feel like a lot of <laughs> sociological answers are very intuitive. If you understand the mm -hmm. basic principles of how humans interact and how social expectations form, I think you can arrive at a lot of advanced conclusions. But with econ stuff, you have to be familiar with a lot of incredibly yeah. intricate Yeah. If I could recommend a book for you to read Please. to at least like give some uh, insight, I think a lot of your audience would do from it as, as well. It's uh, called uh, Economics 4.0 by uh, Antony uh, Kaletsky, a Russian economist. Uh, I think he provides a lot of insight. I don't agree with everything he writes in that book, mm -hmm. but um, his description of a lot of the stuff that happened behind the scenes is it, it adds a lot of value. Uh, I, I think this is um, for two thousand and eight. Uh, yes, for the 2008 crisis in particular, um, he obviously gives some prescriptions for like how you know we can make our government better and more resilient and make capitalism better, which you and your audience may not like. But it gives another per perspective on some of the behind the scenes things that uh, don't really get reported on, but had major, major impacts in terms of like the actual workings of our financial regulation. Well, you, need, you need to understand yeah. the system to criticize it. I mean, that's why Marx mm -hmm. was a cool dude. Oh, sorry, right? it's a, it's a, Capitalism 4.0, not economics 4.0. Sorry, yeah, capitalism 4.0. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, um, you, you have to understand these systems to criticize them, right? I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. Das Kapital isn't as relevant today in all of its assertions because the economy has moved on quite a bit in the past 140 years. But in many ways, I mean, it was remarkable for its time because he took the time to understand the underlying systems. And I think that a lot of people shirk on that, including myself. So it's yeah, something worth uh, looking into. Um, there, there is one last thing, I think, one, one final point. Sure. What would a stock market look like if it represented only investment but not ownership? Because technically, in a market socialist society where every firm is owned collectively by the people who work there, mm -hmm. you couldn't sell off shares that would give other people control over the company. The workers control the company. Um, but you could still have an investment enterprise based around speculation. Would that meaningfully change how Wall Street well, operates? Well, I think so, because if you can't like sell your share to invest it in somewhere that's slightly more efficiently, um, I guess you could like control the bank account balances to reallocate capital to other places. But I think it would be very complicated to figure out something that would work and be as effective and not impactful on the day-to-day -day operations of these companies, right? Because when people are driving up and down the value of the companies, well, they're not actually taking capital or labor out of that company. They're signaling, they're, they're, they're 
trading the shares of it rather than affecting the everyday thing. It'd be it'd and be like bonds, basically, right? It would be like, um, yeah. I mean, I for, I imagine from the retail mm -hmm. perspective, it wouldn't make a difference at all because no retail investor can ever buy enough shares to own a company. I mean, not in a reasonable way. Uh, so I imagine from that perspective, it'd be basically identical but you wouldn't have shareholders which means you wouldn't have shareholder boards or meetings which means the entire system of how these decisions are made would change well i mean you would essentially have shareholders but your composition of the board instead of being uh either the creators of the company who have maintained majority control or the people who have now purchased that company uh it would be a different representation on that board uh, sure. Uh, yes, your composition will be different, but I think effectively you would have the same kind of hierarchy uh, at the end of the day. Um, well, I just don't the like people hierarchy. who are voting on. Well, I mean, what, what if someone's making their, uh, decisions for the uh, company, right? At some point, there is a hierarchy, even if it's flatter than it is now. Oh, of course, there's always going to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah that's that's what I mean. But, I don't right, mean that like you're going to trample the people. Some but yes, hierarchies are just and some aren't, whatever. I'll yeah, look yeah. more into it. I think it's interesting to think about. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, um, and uh, thanks for uh, uh, having me on in front of all your people. If you guys want to come get Reason Takes, you can find me on Twitch. Um, I'm just Rage Pope and uh, appreciate it. Um, oh, are you, are you familiar with the book... Um, um, uh, uh, of Thomas Piketty, 21st Century Capitalism? Uh, capitalism in the 21st Century. Yes, it's a pr very, very good descriptive book. He followed it up uh, with something that you might like. Um, I personally don't like the prescriptions in his new book. Uh, it's, um, uh, I, I totally, I'm totally blanking. Uh, it's on my bookshelf in the other room. I could go get it, but it's a very good read. I would recommend you read that one as well. So he's Parisian uh, economics, so he's going to push reading. for a lot more of a welfare state. It's, um, Someone in my chat's got to have it. Um, Capital and Ideology. There we go. Yeah. And so his first book is amazing. It's probably the authoritative book on, uh, on capital flows and income, wealth and income inequality. But then his second book, Capital and Ideology, I, I don't think takes the right approach to the kind of income inequality that we're seeing. But that's a discussion for another okay, day. Okay. All if right. I'll, I, I, I guess I'll have to lend my opinion to that matter if I can. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so the first one is Description. Yeah, you love it. Uh, it's a great book. I would recommend everybody read it. If you want to talk about wealth and income inequality, you have to read that book. Um, it, it is the definitional or the seminal book in that field that now I would guess. And then he has his capital and ideology that follows up. And there's a lot of other ones that have responses to that book and prescriptions. But that's a very, very good starting point. And I would recommend all of your people read it if they want to talk about wealth and income inequality. All right. Thank you for coming on, Ragebo. Yeah, no problem. Um, thanks uh, for everything, and uh, enjoy your next conversation. Of Take course. Care. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. Bye.